Hello, and welcome to the Church 860 podcast. My name is Pastor Chris, and I'm the lead pastor of Church 860 located in Westerville, Ohio. Our podcast will have daily episodes uploaded where we have curated some of the best Bible teaching from across the globe. We hope you enjoy today's episode. We're in Song of Solomon chapter 5, if you want to turn in your Bibles there, Song of Songs chapter 5. If you find Psalms, you're, you're close, a couple, a couple books behind Psalms. If you find Isaiah, you've gone too far, so back it up one. But we've been in the book of Song of Songs for a few weeks now, and uh, I continue to wear my red shirts because it's an embarrassing subject to talk about, but uh, with my child, child present, children present. But uh, it is the relationship between um, a husband and wife, and it's a beautiful thing. It's what God has ordained for us, and, and he, he delights in it, as we're going to read this evening. The relationship between a husband and a wife, he, he uh, um, endorses it. And, um, and on top of that, we can see a parallel truth in the relationship that we have with Christ, that it's often referred to as a marriage, and so that we are the bride of Christ, and so we can draw a truth on a, a spiritual level as well with our relationship with Christ. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for this time and the opportunity to gather together. We do ask a blessing over your word and over our hearts, Lord, that we would glean from the truths given to us in this scripture to um, help us understand right relationships between husband and wife, but not just husband and wife, as the, the principles we'll learn tonight will benefit all of our relationships, mostly you, our relationship with you. And so we just pray, God, that you would mold and shape our heart. Father, help me to rightly speak. In Jesus' name, amen. So as a transition, we have chapter 5, verse 1. It's really kind of summing up what we had talked about a couple weeks ago, in chapter 4, he said, the beloved says, this would be Solomon, I have come to my garden, my sister, my spouse. I have gathered my myrrh with my spice. I have eaten my honeycomb with my honey. I have drunk my wine with my milk. And then to his friends, it says, eat, O friends, drink, yes, drink deeply, O beloved ones. And this is kind of the summation of what had happened in chapter 3 and 4 as they consummated the marriage. This was the, as they, they um, went to the marriage bed for the first time and they imbibed in one another. They were passionate about one another. We read some very um, strong language in reference to their love for one another uh, and, and how um, it all plays out. And it was... It was um, just beautiful to watch. And this is the summation of it. Verse 1, I, I, I have come to my garden. I have imbibed in, in sexual activity, and I enjoyed that with my wife. It was given to me by God. And then where it says, to his friends, remember that the part in the brackets, that's not actually Scripture. That's a suggestion given to us by those that translated Scripture as to who was saying what and, and sometimes in the Song of Solomon, it's definitely hard to keep track of who is saying what. So those who, who translated the New King James Version says that this line, eat, O friends, drink, yes, drink deeply, O beloved ones, was said by the friends of Solomon. I could see that, but as I taught it a couple weeks ago, I could also see this as said by God to the married couple. 
This is God, God approves of the sexual relationship within the confines of a marriage. It's what God has given us, and we are to enjoy it. He, it, it when it's done rightly, a Christian couple, it can be an act of worship. And so, um, and I know that sounds strange because we so want to separate sexuality from Christianity or from spirituality. But what God intended as he you know, gave us the, the sacrament of marriage is that he gave us this gift to enjoy. And so I almost envi- I envision God saying this, eat, O friends, drink. Yes, drink deeply, O beloved ones. Enjoy what I have given you in the, con- in the way that I have given it to you. So that's, that scene kind of closes, and then we, we step onto a new scene almost. And I want to refresh our memories to a verse back in chapter 2. In chapter 2, verse 15, the brothers of the Shulamite, the bride, said this. They said, catch us the foxes, the little foxes that spoil the vines, for our vines have tender grapes. Do you remember that when we studied chapter 2? And that, what we said was, what that is, is we have to guard our marriages. We have to be intentional about taking care of that, that, that foxes don't get into the garden, that we cultivate the, the marriage uh, relationship and that we keep it strong, that we don't let the little things sneak into our lives that would cause us division or that would cause us to separate or, or tear apart or, or fault. Well, in all marriages, there is no perfect marriage. How do I know that? Because you have a sinner marrying a sinner. And so the idea of a perfect marriage is, is there, there's just simply no such thing. And the wonder and the joy and that they experienced in chapters 4 and the beginning of chapter 5, we find a new situation arising as we get into verse 2. We all make mistakes, including our beloved couple, the Shulamite and Solomon. So verse 2 says, now this is the Shulamite speaking. She says, I sleep, but my heart is awake. It is the voice of my beloved. He knocks saying, open for me, my sister, my love, my dove, my perfect one. For my head is covered with dew, my locks with the drops of the night. And then she says, I have taken off my robe. How can I put it on again? I have washed my feet. How can I defile them? So it's interesting. Now we're headed into a scene that there's going to be conflict. There's going to be... um, uh, a discrepancy between the couple. There's going to be uh, a, a trouble arising, and it's interesting that in in poetic in in um, Near Eastern poetic um, verse, very often whenever trouble arises, they would depict it in a dream. So it, it wasn't something that was actually happening, but they would depict trouble inside of a dream, and and that's exactly what she is saying here. She's having a dream. I sleep but my heart is still awake. I'm aware of you know, what's going on. So I don't know if you've been in that place between sleep and, and awakeness where you're kind of aware and some things happen, but it's just, uh, I think this is a, her, her way of saying a dream. And in her dream, her, um, her beloved comes to her, knocks, asks for her to open the door very often in uh, in that culture, the husband and the wife would actually have separate bed chambers, especially in royalty. 
So the queen would sleep in one room, the king would sleep in another. And so if he wanted to visit, um, he would have to go to her room. And that appears as though what is what is happening, but he's coming at a late hour. He, he's coming at a, a time that wasn't expected. How do we know this? Because his hair is wet with the dew. It's, it's near morning. He's, he's been out all night. He, he, it's not a time that he was expected. And she, as she lays in bed, considers... Do I go to the door? Do I answer his call? And she finds these excuses. I've taken off my robe. How can I put it on again? I've washed my feet ceremonially. She's speaking here. How can I defile them? We need in our relationship with our spouse, in all of our relationships, but especially in our relationship with our spouse, We need to commit to being others-centered. That's our definition of love. We've thrown that around Calvary Chapel for a long time. Love is caring more about somebody else than you care about yourself. It's being others-centered. And we need our relationship to be loving in that way. It needs to be others-centered, placing our spouse's needs in front of our own. And we need to be committed to that. Because our tendency, our natural position, if you would, is selfishness. If we aren't committed to engaging or enacting other-centered love, our natural response is selfishness. And so we need to combat that. What's interesting as we read this is both parties, Solomon and the Shulamite, are actually guilty of self-centeredness as this interaction happens. He's dropping by in the middle of the night, wanting his wife to satisfy his needs while not considering that she had already retired for the night. He thinks he can just show up unannounced, whenever, unplanned, and say, you will meet my needs. That's rather demanding, and that's rather selfish, self-centered. He's not considering the day, the time, the hour, the, the things that she had gone through. And so he is guilty. She is guilty because she doesn't respond to his plea to open to him. She makes excuses. Lame excuses at that. <laughs> I can't put on my robe. Okay. The, 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 and then she even says, well, you know, I've washed my feet for the night. You wouldn't want me to get up, would you? And then she rejects him no less than four times in this little thing. She hears him coming, right? First I hear the voice of my beloved. She hears him coming, but she doesn't respond. He knocks and says, open to me, and she does not. He expresses his love and his longing, right? Oh, my, my sister, my love, my dove, my perfect one. He's expressing his, his desire for her and his love for her. And then she denies that. And then he declares his need. My head is covered with dew. My locks with the, drop of the drops of the night. I, I need to come in. How often do we do this to one another, I wonder? Placing our need in front of the need of our spouse. That's not the way of Christ. That's not the way of a Christian marriage. 1 Corinthians 7 reminds us 
Let the husbands render to his wife the affection due her, and likewise also the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another, except with consent for a time, that you may give yourselves to fasting and prayer. Come together again so that Satan does not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. It's interesting that we come up with all kinds of excuses as to why we can't serve our spouse in this moment. And it doesn't have to be sexually. I'm, I'm talking in all situations. We find ways to justify our desire to be lazy or our desire to serve our self-needs, and we come up with all kinds of excuses. And the Word of God says that there's only one excuse that you wouldn't come together, and that's prayer that you've consented with one another, that means you've predetermined for a time that you are going to separate from one another for the spiritual reason of fasting and praying. And it is, Paul goes on to say in 1 Corinthians, don't let it be a long time that you should be tempted to to leave that relationship or, or stray from what God has ordained for you. The one excuse that God gives, the only excuse that God gives for you not to give yourself in love to one another is the idea of prayer. So that doesn't mean when you don't feel like doing something, you tell your spouse, oh, I'm praying. <laughs> like I said, it has to be consented upon beforehand. When we focus on ourself, when we focus on our need, when we're focused on inwardly, what typically happens is no one's needs are met, right? If I'm focusing on what I need and Michelle is focusing on what she needs and we're not communicating or we're not giving in to one another as far as uh, in anything in our relationship, then my needs aren't met and her needs aren't met and it's just a self-centered thing that doesn't accomplish anything. We need to repent. It's not the way of Christ. It's not the way of the Christian marriage. But then I wondered again, how often do we do that to Christ? Where He's standing at the door knocking. Right? We get that from Revelation chapter 3, verse 20. Behold, I stand at the door and knock, Jesus says. If anyone hears My voice and opens the door, I will come into him and dine with him and he with Me. God desires an intimate relationship with His bride, you and I. And how often do we hear him at the door and we come up with the lame excuse? Oh, Lord, it's, you know, there's only seven minutes left to go in the game. I I know you want me to, you know, get on my knees and pray at this moment, but I'll do it after the game. Lord, my girlfriend, uh, you know, or my friend is coming over and we're getting together and I know that that they are, there's another person in need, but I, I can't meet them right now because I've already arranged this. Lord, I know that you want an intimate relationship with me, but I'm, and we all say this, we're too busy. Maybe we need to listen to what Song of Solomon is teaching us. It says in verse 4, My beloved put his hand by the latch of the door, and my heart yearned for him, so he's still trying to get in. I arose and opened for my beloved, and my hands dripped with myrrh, my fingers 
with liquid myrrh on the handles of the lock. So he's insistent. He's, he's continuing to try to pursue this. He's reaching through the door, trying to unbolt it. And finally, her affections are stirred. But this is how, in, the, in this instance, it's a, it's a, a too little, too late case. For he's already gone. He says in verse 6, I've opened for my beloved, but my beloved had turned away and was gone. My heart leaped up when he spoke. I sought him, but I could not find him. I called him, but he gave no answer. And this is another thing that lends to the idea that this is a dream. Because had she arose as he was reaching through the door, had he left even in that moment as she unbolted the door, she would still see him. But now he's gone. And, and have you had that experience where time just doesn't make sense inside of a dream? Inception, right? It just is this weird thing going on, right? It's just, you know, that all of a sudden it's, you know, whatever. You get it? You with me? All right. If not, I'm sorry. Um, but so she can't find him. Jesus, getting back to our relationship with him, is a gentleman. He's a perfect gentleman, and he won't stay where he's not welcome. So if he knocks and knocks and we don't answer the door, he'll, he'll move on to somebody else. That doesn't mean he leaves us or abandons us. He never forsakes us. But the moment for that intimacy with Jesus is gone. It says in verse 7, The watchmen who went about the city found me. They struck me. They wounded me. The keepers of the wall took my veil away from me. I charge you, O daughters of Jerusalem, if you find my beloved... That you tell him I am lovesick. Again, this is a dream. The, the, the watchman on the wall wouldn't harm the queen. They wouldn't take her veil. They wouldn't strike her. Uh, this is probably her guilt rising up. And in her dream, it's, 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 the dream is responding in this way that she is uh, being beat up. She says there at the end of verse 8 that I'm lovesick. That, was, that term was used in chapter 2 as well. In chapter 2, it was an overcoming of emotion because of the closeness of her love. She was, you know, she couldn't tell if she was, is this love or is it the flu, you know? And, and because of how uh, the, the, the closeness of him. But here, it's a yearning brought on by separation. She's, so, she's, she's sickened by her actions, by the fact that they are separated now, and she's, she's upset over it. And so she cries out to the daughters of Jerusalem. They've had an interaction throughout the song. And they respond in verse 9. What is your beloved more than another beloved, O fairest among women? What is your beloved more than another beloved that you so charge us? What's so great about your man is what they're saying. What's, what, what's, he, what's so special about him that we would go looking for him? And the question is posed, and rightfully so, this is interesting, the question is posed to the Shulamite so that her thoughts can get back to the right place. So that she can properly order her thoughts and she can properly focus herself. When we've sinned, when we've fallen short, when we haven't answered the knock at the door against our spouse or against our God, the proper response is to put your eyes, put your mind on whom you love. Make sense? 
So we see here, that's what the, 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 the daughters of Jerusalem are trying to get her to do is, hey, set your eyes on the one whom you love. And that's what she's going to do. Watch how the renewing of her mind allows the door to be open for restoration. And now we see the Shulamite's response, and this is, we talked about this a couple weeks ago, the way that she responds here, it's what's known as a wasf, W-A-S-F, and it's a special poem uh, that describes the physical um, prowess or the physical attributes of a person. So the Shulamite now is going to describe her husband, the beloved. It says, My beloved is white and ruddy, chief among 10,000. So he's, she's, she's building him up throughout this poem. She's, he's white and ruddy. That word ruddy means manly, right? He's a man's man. He's got a beard. Yeah. Actually, he does. We're, we'll get to that in just a second. Chief among 10,000. Another word. If I had 10,000 guys lined up, he'd be the one I picked. That's, that's how I feel about him, is what she's saying. He's the cream of the crop. Verse 11, his head is like the finest gold. His locks are wavy and black as a raven, speaking of his hair. His eyes are like doves. Remember, she, he said that about her. Now she says, his eyes are like doves by the rivers of water, washed with milk, bright, and fitly set. The idea is fitly set like a jewel would be set in a, in, a, uh, in a ring. His cheeks are like a bed of spices, banks of scented herbs. His lips are lilies, dripping liquid myrrh. So his cheeks are like a bed of spices. This is where we get the idea of a beard. There would be very often, well, in that culture, almost all men would have a beard, and they would oil it, and so it would be scented, the beard would be scented. This is what um, the commentator Clark says. Uh, it's been uh, speaking of the, the cheeks like, his, like a bed of spices. It has been supposed to refer to his beard, which in a young, well-made man is exceedingly beautiful. I have seen young Turks who have taken much care of their beards and mustaches and look majestic. Scarcely, listen to this, scarcely anything serves to set off the human face to greater advantage than the beard. When kept in proper order, females admire it in their suitors and husbands. I have known cases where they, uh, I, where, I, I have known cases where they not only despised, but uh, execrated Europeans who face, whose faces were closely shaved. Uh, the men perfume their beards often, and this may be what is intended by the spices and sweet-selling myrrh. I'm not trying to endorse anything here. I'm just saying this is, you know. Females admire it in their suitors and husbands. So. I, I like what Spurgeon said, you know, to, to have, a, uh, have a beard is a godly or a manly thing, something along those lines. Every man should strive for. Hey, I can't grow it up here. I just can't. It's it's it left me when I was 23. So I'm just doing what I can. <laughs> All right. Uh, his lips are like lilies. Uh, they were beautiful, dripping liquid myrrh. Um, a reference to he, she wants to kiss him. Verse 14. His hands are rods of gold set with beryl. They're strong. 
and, and uh, his body is carved ivory inlaid with sapphires. So evidently he was strong, he was pure. You get the idea of ivory was pure. He must have had washboard abs or something because the dude was ripped, and that's, that's what she's saying here. Actually, that's like the PG version. There, there, there's another connotation that some would say, uh, speaking of the ivory and what have you, that we'll just skip over. Verse 15, his legs are pillars of marble set on bases of fine gold, his countenance like Lebanon, excellent as the cedar. So speaking of his legs, that's his foundation. His foundation is firm. He stands sure like the cedars of Lebanon. He's not going anywhere. His mouth is most sweet. Yes, he's altogether lovely. This is my beloved and this is my friend, O daughters of Jerusalem. So she already spoke of his lips. Now she speaks of his mouth, referring to his words. His words are lovely and sweet. I love that phrase. He is altogether lovely. Hear this from um, Spurgeon and and David Guzik. Kind of a thought together. Some things are beautiful from one angle and not from another. Some are beautiful when they're younger, but not when they're older. Some things look beautiful from a distance, but not up close. Some things are beautiful in one way, but not another. Jesus is altogether lovely. Yet for all of his beauty and perfection, it is almost entirely unappreciated by the world. And here's the Spurgeon quote. The vain world cannot see him in a virtue to admire. It is a blind world, a fool world, a world that lies in the wicked one. Not to discern the beauties of Jesus is an evidence of terrible depravity. Have you, my dear friend, frankly to confess that you were never enamored of him who was holy, harmless, and undefiled, and went about doing good? Jesus is altogether lovely. So chapter 6, it'll move quickly. Now the daughters of Jerusalem say, Where has your beloved gone, O fairest among women? Where has your beloved turned aside that we may seek him with you? So the question initially was, why would we be interested in helping you find this guy? And then she responds with this beautiful poem about how majestic he is. And you can tell her love for him. The question has now turned to a desire to see this relationship mended. How can we help you? Now they are asking Where has he gone? And what's interesting is now she knows where he's gone. Look at verse 2. My beloved has gone to his garden, to the bed of spices, to feed his flock in the gardens and to gather lilies. She was asking the question before, as she awoke from the dream or as she was in the dream, where I don't know where he's gone. When she went to answer the door, she didn't know. But now that she's set her heart in the right place, Now that she's set her focus on him, now she knows where he is. How much is that true of us with Christ? Lord, I I feel so distant from you. I still feel so far away from you. What do you do? You throw yourself into the prayer closet. You open his word and you pour into the word and you get your eyes focused on him. You renew your mind. Romans chapter 12. And all of a sudden, there he is again. I know where he is, is what she says, now that her heart's in the right place. 
Some would say that this verse 2 would be uh, perhaps a, a reference to the couple coming back together to make love, and that could be. We continue on. It says in verse 3, and I love this verse. This is, this is um, a very popular verse. I am my beloved, and my beloved is mine. He feeds his flock among the lilies. That's just a great verse. I am my beloved's, and my beloved is mine. First thing I want us to notice about that verse is the order of it. She doesn't say, my beloved is mine, and I am my beloved's. No, she's now others-centered. She's gotten her heart in the right place, so now she says, I am my beloved first. I, I, I am his first. She's now focused properly and others-centered, lending herself to him. That's a properly ordered heart. Christ, if he declares his love for us, as he demonstrates his love for us, as he gave his all to show us that he loved us, how glorious a thought that I am his. And he is mine. I am my beloved, beloved's, and my beloved is mine. And then it says he feeds his flock among the lilies. It's the role of the husband to provide for his wife. In a, in a Christian marriage, the, the man of the house is the spiritual leader of the household. It is upon his shoulders to make sure that his wife has all that she needs. And, and, and we see Christ meeting that need for us. Matthew 6.33, Seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. Jesus meets our need. So then the beloved, Solomon responds in verse 4, Oh my love, you are as beautiful as Terza, as lovely as Jerusalem, Awesome as an army with banners. Again, guys, I don't recommend that you try these on your girl. They're just they're, they're going to fall short. That's just the way it is. The, 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 the context doesn't work for our culture. So don't write these down, but follow the method. But what we see here is as he responds, we never see Terza, we never see the Shulamite ask for forgiveness. But it's evident that forgiveness has been given, isn't it? Because of the way the beloved, he responds to her. Oh, my love, you are as beautiful as Terza, as lovely as Jerusalem. Consider that. He's not saying, you didn't answer the door. So go find somebody else. No, there's evidence of forgiveness here. We've got much to learn when it comes to forgiveness. Just quickly, Terza was the northern capital um, prior to it being Israel. Terza was a beautiful city. Um, and in fact, the word literally means beautiful to behold. And so he's calling her Terza. You're as, as beautiful as Terza. You are beautiful to behold. Jerusalem was a, a city that was um, enamored by all in the culture. And so that was a compliment as well. An awesome army with banners. No idea what that means. <laughs> I guess that would be majestic to behold, right? That would be an impressive sight. David Guzik, the commentator, says, there is not a hint of bitterness or unforgiveness on the part of the beloved. There had been a disruption of their relationship. That's what we saw at the beginning tonight. 
And that was largely her fault. We saw fault in both, but primarily it was her fault. Yet the offended party in this relationship was quick to forgive and restore relationship. Uh, I love the way uh, the beloved responds. Listen to him in verse 5. He tells her, turn your eyes away from me, for they have overcome me. Does that, does, guys, is, have you, do you understand that? Have you looked into your wife's eyes and, and it's so strong an emotion, you just have to break eye contact with them? That, that's, that, that's what he's saying. Turn away from me. You, you've overcome me. I, I can't even think straight when you look at me. Gazing at her stirs his emotion, and now he's going to respond with another one of those poems, the wasp. He says, your hair is like a flock of goats going down from Gilead. Again, don't use this. (laughs) (laughs) Your teeth are like flocks of sheep which have come up from the washing. Everyone bears twins, and none is barren among them. She, She has all her teeth, which was unusual in that day. Like a piece of pomegranate are your temples behind your veil. She had a rosy color. What's interesting to note, that the, different in this poem than the last one that he gave, is he does not refer to her sexuality in any way. In the prior one, he did. He spoke of her breasts. He spoke of her garden. And, and this one, he does not. This is not a cheap attempt at makeup sex. That this, is, this is him expressing his desire for intimacy, the restoration of the relationship. He says there are 60 queens and 80 concubines and virgins without number. My dove, my perfect one, is the only one, the only one of her mother, the favorite of the one who bore her. The daughters saw her and called her blessed, the queens and concubines, and they praised her. Who is she who looks forth as the morning, fair as the moon, clear as the sun, awesome as an army with banners? There's that line again. It's evident that he values her he, uh, above all. I don't know if these numbers are accurate or if it's just a, if this is where Solomon was. We know that Solomon ended up with whatever it was, 700 wives and 300 concubines and, and his heart drawn away from the Lord. So I don't think that, that this is a, a literal thing. But it's evident that he loves her above all else. The forgiveness is complete. His love for her hasn't faltered as it is with Christ and us. No matter how many times we don't answer the door, no matter how many times we have fallen short, His love never fails. His love never falters. Forgiveness was completed on the cross. So the Shulamite says in verse 11, I went down to the garden of nuts to see the uh, verdure of the valley, to see whether the vine had budded and the pomegranates had bloomed. Before I was even aware, my soul had made me as the chariots of my noble people. Huh? What we can glean from this is she says she goes to the garden to see the verdure of the valley. The idea is she's going there to see springtime. She's going there to see um, everything budding and, 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 and the blooms coming and all that. She's returning to the springtime of her marriage, to when things were right and well, the springtime of her romance. 
reminding herself of the glorious love that they have. And the result is, we see, as it says, the chariots, uh, my soul made me as the chariots of my noble people. We, the result is, her heart is quickened for her love. So finishing up, it says, the beloved and his friends say, return, return, O Shulamite, return, return, that we may look upon you. And she says, what would you see in the Shulamite? As it were, the dance of the two camps? What a strange response, but I think this is what we can glean from it. In our relationships, especially in our relationship with Christ, we can't live with a foot in two worlds. You tracking? We have to be all in for Him. We can't play the dance of two camps where I act a certain way around certain people, but I'm not that person when I'm by myself or if I'm with a different group of people. We can't play that game. Our hearts need to be fully surrendered to the lover of our souls, and that is Jesus. And the world would beg as they do, that we would return to it that our love may falter. So what do we learn throughout this? That all relationships have bumpy places. That because it is a sinner and a sinner joined together for the entirety of their lives, they are going to make mistakes. And so what is the right return when we falter? Because we will falter in our relationships, and even in our relationship with Christ. First, admit our wrong, right? She gets out of bed. She goes to answer the door. Set our eyes on Him. He, he's the author and perfecter of our faith, it tells us in Hebrews. Set our eyes on Him. That's, that's what the question that the, the daughters of Jerusalem proposed where it was given in order that we, she might set her, her eyes on Him. Embrace the forgiveness that is always there. The way the beloved responds is beautiful to behold. He had forgiven her before she even asked. And then, determine not to dance the dance of two camps. Lord, I faltered. I've fallen short. I didn't answer the door when you called. Help me to set my eyes on you. I'm going to spend more this time in prayer. I'm going to focus on your word. I'm going to embrace the forgiveness. I'm going to remind myself that the price had been paid at the cross and that His blood covers all my sins. And then from that time forward, I'm going to strive to live a holy life, not dancing the dance of two camps. But it's not always us who do the wrong. It's also sometimes we who are wronged. Our spouse, our friends, sin against us. And what can we learn from what is given to us in chapter 5 and 6? Take the road of the beloved who fully forgave. Because we've been forgiven much, have we not? Amen. Let's stand, let's close in prayer. Lord, I thank You for the practicality of this book and for what we can learn to implement into our relationship with our spouse or our future spouse or Lord, even in our friend, relationships with our friends and our co-workers. 
Lord, help us always to have a forgiving heart because our, our hearts and our minds are set in the right place and we've been renewed by uh, setting our hearts and minds on you. That we would remember the forgiveness that has been given to us. The debt that has been paid that we owed, Lord, that we might forgive our brothers and sisters as well. And Lord, if we've danced in two camps, I pray that today we would make a, a, a step toward holiness. Father, if, if our relationship right now, if the relationships we're in are strained because we're living as selfish and not selfless, I pray that we would repent, that we would begin to live other-centered, placing others' needs in front of our own. I pray that for every marriage in this, in this room, that with our marriage, we would display the love of Christ to our children, to our friends and family, to the people of the church, Lord. We thank you for the relationship that you made with us, giving your life that we might have life. We close by singing, I love you, Lord, because we do love you. And we thank you for the chance to gather tonight. In Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to today's episode of the Church 860 podcast. We hope that you've enjoyed it. If you have, we ask that you would like and subscribe to the podcast so that you can get daily updates. If you'd like to know more about Church 860, please visit church860.com. Thank you. God bless.